You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 105. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Hi, everyone. You've reached another Local Maximum. Uh, you're going to love our guest today, particularly those of you who like my episodes on Bayesian statistics. And I know there are a lot of you out there who like my episodes on Bayesian statistics. Uh, at least my posterior belief from all your data, download data, uh, informs me as such. Uh, but uh, you're going to get what I, I, I think is a fun and well-rounded interview with a mathematician today where we really look for helpful analogies for you and your thought process of Okay, what should I believe? How should I do inference? How do I get good at interpreting all this data around me? And if you want to get into the more advanced mathematical stuff, then I have links for you. But um, it's going to be a very conceptual, uh, analogy-rich interview. Um, You're going to get to see what happens when two Bayesian mathematicians get together on a voice call. And uh, that's always fun. Now, um, At the end of this interview, please stick around because I have a personal story. But before we begin, I just want to say a few things on last week's episode, a little follow-up. Particularly, uh, we talked about all of these laws being proposed around the world, and specifically in the U.S., to ban encryption. I used to not care about this stuff, believe it or not. I was wrong. Not care, not understand. I think a lot of people don't understand it. And I don't think that... um, I did a good job of explaining the problem uh, enough. Um, I'm probably not the best one to do it, but I want to go a little bit further now. Uh, One analogy that I want to give about these encryption laws, and I I realize it's an imperfect analogy, but just go with me here, but it's an important one. Uh, What if... What if there was a law saying that you can't have locks on your doors at home? And the reasoning behind those laws is that the police need to get into your home during an investigation, then those locks are going to slow them down. Uh, I think that most people would be horrified at such a law, and and rightfully so, and so it'll never get passed. Uh, Now, what about this? What if the government says, okay, sure, you should lock your doors at home, be a little bit more secure. How about you just give us a copy of your keys to the police or just make make the locks in a way that the, the police have access. And, and that way, you know, the criminals can't get into your home and uh, the police can, everybody wins. Same with your alarm and security system. Give the police control over it. That way everyone's safe. Well, that's a lot of power to give authorities right there, and that's enough for me to not like this. But in the analogy to not being able to completely lock up your data uh, without giving your keys, in this case, uh, in this case, you know, the, the federal government of the United States <laughs> wants access to your data. Actually, it makes you less, less safe, even from the criminals. If, say, you completely trust the federal government in the extreme case, I can't imagine anyone saying they completely trust the federal government, but okay, even if that's your... Even if that is your uh, your position, uh, this still makes you more vulnerable uh, to criminal enterprises trying to get access to your data. Aaron actually sent me some examples of this in practice. It's not with data. It's actually with luggage. If you're going to the airport, uh, sure, you can lock your luggage, but the TSA, the uh, Transportation Safety, whatever, those men and women who yell at you at the airport— uh, you know, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. You change it every single time. Stand here, take off your shoes, don't take off your shoes. Then they switch it up. And then if you're not hip to what they tell you to do at the airport, it's you. You're holding up the line. 
I get that all the time. But anyway, the uh, the TSA, it says it. Uh, uh, it says sure you can lock your luggage, but it needs to be an approved approved a TSA approved lock that allows them to open it. And these locks, they have a master key that the TSA has access to. And apparently, no one actually even stole these keys from the TSA. They simply figured out the master key. They hacked it. So. Now, if you have those mandated locks, it's far less safe uh, and someone can get into your luggage. And interestingly enough, if you're transporting a firearm and the the TSA says, uh, no, you have to use a real lock, you can't use one of our locks to transport your firearm because then we don't want someone getting access to your uh, firearm. Uh, Okay, so what good are your locks then if someone can get access to, say, I don't know, your valuables or whatever it is. I mean, most of us aren't traveling with a firearm in our our luggage. Um, So uh, take this analogy and and take this story and apply it to your data online. Uh, There are so many reasons to oppose these anti-encryption laws, but for me, it just offends my sensibilities to outlaw a number, essentially, or a mathematical process. That just seems insane so I'll link to a couple of videos on that, the number file on illegal numbers and computer file on banning encryption and how it was essentially equivalent to banning this uh, this computer science professor, this professor in cryptography, this, this researcher's book in the United Kingdom. And once again, I'm going to link to Naomi Brockwell on this, who has been really good on these privacy issues as of late, because I think about... What do I do in terms of my own data security? How can I be better? And you might be in the same boat as me when you realize, oh, crap, definitely not enough and almost certainly not enough. And so <laughs> in this interview uh, called New Year's Privacy Detox, she, um, what she did was she, she went through some very basic stuff with her guest uh, that you can do uh, to make your data more secure that would be easy to do for an average person. So I got a lot of value out of that. Uh, I really like that. So I will link to that once again on the show notes page at localmaxradio.com slash 105. One thing that her guest uh, Perry Metzger said that really sticks out in my mind is, should you do this if you have nothing to hide? And he said, you know, there are people out there who do have something to hide. And it's a public service for everyone to be using these tools for these people. So that way they know if you're not using these privacy tools, then you are. So So in other words, if everyone's using these privacy tools, then it doesn't mean you have something to hide. But if only the people who have something to hide are using these tools, then it kind of sets off alarms. So it's kind of a public service for everyone to use them. So that's one I want to let swirl around in my head a little bit, because that's an interesting idea, you know. Are there legitimate things one would want to hide? And do we want to live in society where where they can do this? Uh, that's an interesting question. I want to hear your thoughts on it. Localmaxradio at gmail.com. Personally, I think that most people don't think they have anything to hide. But keep in mind, everyone pretty much, no, no, everyone is vulnerable to hacking, is vulnerable to identity theft, theft, and you know, most people don't realize what it is that they have to hide. They think they have nothing to hide until someone comes after you, and um, which does happen from time to time. Uh, fortunately, it uh, hasn't happened to um, me. I'm sure it's happened to people I know. I, I don't know as much, but it, it can happen, uh, so it's always good to be safe. All right, enough with that. Bring me the math. My next guest has a lifelong fascination with airplanes 
and also a long-time fascination with Bayes' theorem. She founded Bayes Consulting, based in the UK, where they're experts at finding patterns in data sets. She was also declared the world's most interesting mathematician in 2019 by the Institute of Mathematics. Sophie Carr, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be on. Yeah, I heard you're a fan of math, so I knew you had to be on the show. I am an enormous fan of math. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big part of my life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, you you recently went on one of my favorite math podcasts. It's called My Favorite Theorem. And yours was Bayes' Theorem, which honestly, if I ever go on that podcast, that's kind of what I would have chosen. So now that means I have to pick something else if I ever go on that podcast. I get a chance to talk about it enough on on this show. Uh, So let's let's dive into that. Um, When did you discover Bayesian statistics and and Bayes' Theorem? And um, when did it become your favorite? Oh, so I discovered Bayes' theorem uh, pretty late on, actually. I was in my mid-20s, and I discovered it uh, entirely by accident. So I uh, was working as an engineer. I trained as an engineer. I was working as an aeronautical engineer. And I started to become uh, really interested in why the people I was working with couldn't take in all the information that was being put in front of them. And there was just lots and lots of different bits of information flowing in. Um, And so I thought it would be a really good idea to do um, a PhD uh, part time. And I went to a few universities and started talking about what I was interested in and met the person who became my supervisor and went, you know, you really need to do something called a Bayesian network. I have no idea what one of those is. And that was it. And within a couple of weeks, I was like, where has this been? This is how we think. This is so intuitive and it lets us put uncertainty in. And um, yeah, literally went from being an aeronautical engineer to, oh, this is quite nice. Let's let's do this for the rest of my career. You know, it's it, it's interesting you mentioned because I, I discovered this stuff around the same age you did. And I'm sure that I was exposed to Bayes' rule, you know, in college or you know, possibly even high school, like probability class. But there's something about you know, when you're trying to solve, um, when you're trying to solve actual open-ended problems in the world, then all of a sudden it clicks like, oh, this is, this is how to do it. I I mean, I don't, did did you experience something like that? Yeah. So I think the thing that for me was when you're very first introduced to Bayesian, and I I absolutely did not see it in my, my undergrad or master's because I did aeronautical engineering. So there was um, lots and lots of applied maths and basically no statistics, lots of fluid mechanics. And Uh, when I first saw it and you're given base term, it's like three terms, that's it. I just times times two and divide. Okay. I mean, you know, nothing's that hard, is it really? Um, and actually yeah. when you dig into it, what I loved, what absolutely clicked with me from the start is that it's a really great way to be honest because I can be upfront about uncertainty because you can't do this and say that you're absolutely certain. And that for me was just that opportunity to explore and keep exploring and just look at how the uncertainty changes. It just made sense. It's like, okay, I, I can run with this. Um, and it was just, it just clicked in a way that maybe frequentist statistics hadn't, but I don't know if it's the same for you. I, I've always liked maths that I can apply and get my head around. So maybe it yeah, was yeah. from a work, work point of view as opposed to being given a textbook and told to answer questions, you know, one to 20 or whatever it was, because I'd kind of found it because it was solving a problem. It was solving an issue that I had, um, but it, it just made more sense. 
Do you remember the first issue that you had where you used Bayesian inference to say, ah, this is the right way to think about it? Um, yeah. And so that was my PhD. So I had this problem and it was it was looking at information. And uh, what I was really interested in was when people um, stop looking for different solutions. So you're getting information in that might be telling you something's happening, but you're, you're so adamant that, that that can't possibly be what's actually happening. So, so what was the what was the actual problem? What was the information about? Oh, okay. So, uh, in my PhD, um, I I based it on um, looking at when information was coming in and, and making a decision. And I actually used some real world examples. Um, looking across, uh, so I used the Yom Kippur War as one of them. So, where information is coming in, but because of previous history and things like that, that people didn't pick up on what was necessarily happening. Um, and so when I started to plot out the Bayesian networks and I started to talk to people and, and, and actually talk about how people take in the information, the fact that we could create nothing perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but just with really simple networks, actually watch how the information flow changed and how people's perception of what they were telling me they were seeing just didn't match up to the numbers that they were associating with, with other probabilities and to show how these inconsistencies came. I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, I, I want to get into like the mechanics of it a little bit. I've explained Bayes' rule a, a lot on this program, but we should probably do it very briefly on, on this episode. But for, uh, you mentioned like you know, information coming in during a war. Are you talking about like, you know, information to people who are making decisions on the battlefield or information to like journalists or, yeah. No, 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 no. So my, my, my PhD, which is, it's, it's all, you know, on, online and you can, you can happily find it. Um, so I was actually looking at people who were making decisions on information such as, um, so one of the, the, uh, the examples in my, in my PhD is where people start to see that, um, the, the embassies were closing. So foreign nationals were leaving okay. and, and what's the implication of, of, of that? And what's the implication of that if you put with the fact that there are, um, lots of exercises going on and, um, and, and all those different bits of information, which maybe by themselves, you you don't necessarily um, think are important, but when the, they all start to come together, does it tell you something that maybe you're not thinking of? So you were talking about information, and the way I always explain Bayes' theorem and, 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 and Bayesian inference, uh, do, you, do you play the game Guess Who? Uh, Did you play that as a kid? Yes, I played Guess Who all the time. I was actually really interested in that game <laughs> growing yeah. up. So, this is this is how I always explain Bayes' theorem. Okay. So uh, you 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 know you and I are playing Guess Who. Yeah. So, and, so Guess uh, Who for people who don't know. I don't know if P kids still play Guess Who. I don't know if everybody knows what Guess Who is. So so Guess Who uh, we still play it in my family. I've, I've got to, I, I do have two small children. Uh, is a game where um, there are uh, two sets of um, basically photos of people. Well, the little you know the little stickers and like cartoons. and people have got. Yeah, they're cartoons. They've got um, glasses and different coloured hair and different coloured eyes and some have beards, some don't have beards and earrings and all those types of things. And I don't know, there's probably what, sort of 30-ish little cartoon characters. Um, and I have one set and you have one set and we choose a card each and we've got to guess which which card we've got. And the, one of those cards are, are, are in these sets of cartoon characters. So the prior probability, the chance that you know it's any one of those people that you're looking at is, is kind of easy to work out at the start because you've it's one of them, and you know how many people you have. Yes, and it's, it's uniform. Um, yeah, it's it. It's really, I, I, I genuinely don't like uniform prize, but you know, in that case, it is. <laughs> and then we get to ask questions which give us information. So I might ask you, does the person wear glasses? And if they do, I can get rid of everybody who doesn't wear glasses. 
and I've used that information and I've updated my belief and I've updated my prior because I've managed to get rid of stuff. Uh, but occasionally I ask a question that might not help. So maybe I might ask, does the person, um, uh, I don't know, have white hair or wear earrings? And actually, um, everybody does or doesn't have earrings. And so I, I've got information that doesn't help me understand what I'm looking at because probability, unfortunately, doesn't always help things. But, you know, working, playing guess who is an absolutely brilliant example of, of based theory. Amazing influence. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. First, I always thought I guess who there's like a um, there's a trade off between um, risk and reward. So, for example, if half of the people who are left on my board have glasses, and then I ask, you know, yeah. does your person have glasses? I know for certain that I'm going to eliminate fifty percent of the of the of the people. And guess who? But yeah. if let's say there are five people left with glasses and 15 left without glasses. And I say, does this person have glasses? Well, in all likelihood, it's going to be in the 15 and I can eliminate those five, but there's a very small chance that you'll be like, yes, they have mm -hmm. glasses. And then I eliminate like a whole, uh, a whole large percentage of my, uh, of my holdings. But it is, but it's also another great way, isn't it? So, I mean, with statistical inference, all we're trying to do is calculate the shape of, of the data. Oh, I mean, that's what statistical inference is. We're, we're just looking at sort of ordered data and we can see if there are outliers and things like that. And all, all Bayesian inference is really is doing that um, using Bayes' theorem. So when you start to talk about that statistical inference, you're trying to look, you know, am, am I sitting right out at the edges or, or am I not? And what's the quickest way to win? And, you know, there's always gaming involved. That's the, that's the reason you play the game quite literally, isn't it? But um, I think... It's just a fantastic right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, maybe I could think of it like uh, Bayesian inferences, like probabilistic guess who. Because if I ask, <laughs> like, say I ask, like, does, does your person have a beard? And then you'll say, well, you know, maybe there's a 90% chance they have a beard. Or, okay, I can't eliminate the people with beards or, or without beards, but uh, their their posteriors go down. Yeah. 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 And Really, that's what we do when we when we're using Bayesian inference to in our in our modelling, and I think I just think it's the way we intuitively think, and I think Bayes' theorem. So you know, are there examples where we use Bayes' theorem every day? Yeah, there are. I mean, we use Bayes' theorem without even think about it. it yeah. So wh why do you think it is that like you know people aren't when people are taught about probability at a younger age they aren't taught the bayesian side of things and they're taught a, taught it in a way that's less you know intuitive less how we think um yeah. and so people are kind of i don't know maybe they're turned off by probability or statistical inference because of that so i think i don't know how um statistics is is taught in in um, states, but certainly I knew when my son had started probability and statistics at school because he came home and what came out of his mouth was, I will never care how many marbles are in a bag or how many socks are under my bed. And I said, okay, so you've been taking things out of the bag. And he went, yeah. I said, okay, well, you know, there are there's other types of statistics. So Bayesian statistics mean, you know, you use it every day. Well, one of the things you're taught in science is you've got to look both ways. Okay, so you have to look, is it is it something going up or down? Are you making a positive or negative effect? And, and that's really what statistics does. It lets you look both ways. So if we turn that into a, a Bayesian statistics every day, you're going to cross the road. 
So you do quite literally look left and look right and you, you update the chance and the probability that you're safe to cross and then you decide how fast to cross. And you do that and you take in massive amounts of uncertainties and massive amounts of um, information and then decide whether you're going to do it or not. And one of the other classic ones is um, every morning, regardless of how hard I try, we have those two minutes where everybody's shouting, where are the car keys or where are the house keys? And, you know, if you're talking that, about that in Bayesian statistics, okay, so I've got my um, car keys or I haven't got my car keys usually and I'm trying to find them. I don't start by looking in the washing machine or the fridge because that's the least likely place that they're going to be. In theory, the most likely place is the place where we're meant to put the keys every night or my handbag. And so you start there. And then as you as you cut out those places that are really obvious, eventually somebody finds them, you know, under the fruit bowl or wherever else they ended up putting. But again, that is Bayesian statistics Yeah, but, in action. No, think about it. That's why it's always helpful uh, to like ask, uh, even though like, you know, I, I can ask someone else where I left my keys, even though they have no idea, because they're more likely to give me the the best prior answer, whereas I'm too emotional because I can't find my keys. Um, That's it, as we're all shouting to get the shoes on, get the bags, and just get out of the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's really hard, but, you know, uh, the, the the classic paper on Bayesian uh, belief networks is is looking at should Sherlock Holmes go home? And, and I don't know if, you, if you've read the, the paper on that, uh, but yeah. um, no, okay, so it's kind of like the, the seminal paper on, on Bayesian networks that really kicked it all off, and the idea is that uh, Sherlock Holmes um, has got a best mate, Dr. Watson, yeah. and Dr. Watson's a bit of a practical joker, and he phones Sherlock at home uh, at work and says, you need to come home, your burglar alarm's going off. Hmm. But Sherlock knows that it could be a burglar, but it could be an earthquake that has set his alarm off. So I'm guessing you live somewhere where there are earthquakes because that tends not to happen around here. Um, or he also knows that Watson is a bit of a practical joker. So how do you start to decide if Sherlock should go home? And, and the paper actually goes through how you can, you can look at the differences of the information. You know, So what is the likelihood of, of, of having an earthquake? Well, in some parts of the world, it's quite high. Uh, in, in leafy Surrey, it, it's not so much, to be honest. And it is those everyday examples. And whilst everybody's job might not be risk assessments or something like that, for which Bayes' theorem is just an inherent part of what you do, um, I think, if, again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. If you can make the statistics relevant, if you help people understand how they automatically are doing this and are using it, actually, I think you start to generate that interest of, well, maybe I want to know a little bit more about how I come up with these decisions. Or maybe I want to know a little bit more about why I, when I search in, on a search engine, answers come up. And, and just generating that interest. Yeah. So uh, you talked a little bit about belief networks and uh, we talk a lot about the, on the program, you know, individual problems involving uh, involving Bayes rule, you know, coming up with your prior, yeah. updating your prior. But um, can you explain a little bit about how they are kind of put together to build these belief networks? Like wh what does that mean? Okay. So um, a Bayesian belief network, it's really just a well, I know it is. It's just a picture. It's a graph. And what a Bayesian belief network shows are variables, things you're interested in, okay, and they are often put in little ovals. Um, and then how they connect is shown by arrows. So it's a directed acyclic graph is the, you know, the complicated maths term. 
But all those arrows show is how Bayes' theorem connects the variables. And each of those variables will have uh, an underlying probability distribution. Yes. Okay. So I'm trying to think of an ex so, a good example. Like it's, it's always hard to think of an example on the spot that's not too ordinary, but uh, hmm. <laughs> I mean, again, the, one of the, the really uh, simple ones. So there's lots of ways. There's only three ways those, that those arrows can connect. So let's say that you, you wake up in the morning and your grass is wet. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. So um, we would need to know what just on a stand morning when you wake up, what's the probability of your grass? being wet. Now that might be dependent upon the time of year, certainly as in England at the moment it's wet a lot. Um, but it could also be affected by factors such as do you have a sprinkler? Right. So you might have two things that affect the probability of the grass being wet. Um, could you have left your sprinkler overnight and could it have rained? And then you start to work out um, what's the probability that your grass is wet given that the sprinkler was on or maybe just that it rained. Or perhaps you've got a really shady garden due to some some big trees. So only a bit of your grass is wet. And does that affect it? So it's it's not always easy to necessarily think of Bayesian networks. But one of them that one of the really great examples of Bayesian networks is actually the turbo code, which is the reception in your mobile phone. OK, that's a Bayesian, that's a Bayesian network. But that wasn't developed as a Bayesian network. Somebody just kind of figured out the code and then somebody else realized that it was a Bayesian network. Yeah, yeah, that uh, you, that happens a lot. Um, yeah, which is pretty nifty. Okay, cool. I, I, um, I mean, I have written here, we, we kind of went over this, but I have written here, like, how do you explain Bayesian inference to someone encountering for the, for the first time? And I actually had that experience yesterday. I was explaining yeah. Bayes' rule to a high schooler, a smart high schooler, and I realized yeah. it's harder to do than you th think when you dive into it. I'm always like, okay, uh, like, I have it in my head, the simplest thing possible. I have it in my head, you know, posterior is proportional to prior times likelihood. That's all I have in my head, and I just derive everything from that. But, uh, yeah, man, when encountering it for the first time, how do you usually approach that? Okay, so I'm glad you said that you find it quite hard, because when I started to think about how do I actually explain Bayesian inference, it's like, oh. And I think, really, if you're going to talk about Bayesian inference, I think you need to kind of almost split it out into statistical inference and Bayes' theorem. Okay. Because I, I think if you can get your head around statistical inference, so uh, statistical inference really, you know, to me, it's creating a list of the values or the intervals or, or whatever you're measuring and how frequently those things occur. And that gives you a shape and it's often a, a curve and we can express that with an equation. And from that shape or equation, we can, we can tell a lot. We can look at the range and the variance and we can look at the extremes and if we plot it smallest to largest in this sort of distribution, then some of them become really well known, like a bell curve, you know, the normal curve that we talk about. And people can then start to understand that when we're looking at this, this normal curve, we can work out what percentage might be under that curve or what bit of a population we might be worrying about under that curve. And then, as you said earlier, all, what Bayesian inference is, is really just the process of, of calculating that distribution using Bayes' theorem. Yeah. That, that's what it is. And, and if you can if you can understand that what you're creating is this this distribution, but you you don't you don't create the distribution by counting how often something turns up in the same way that you would with a, a frequency statistics. You're you're using Bayes' theorem to come up with that distribution from which you then you make an inference. That's kind of how I start. 
But base theorem to me, like you say, it really is just timesing two things, or you can times two and divide by a third, depending how you want to explain it. Right. But it, at its simplest, it is just three numbers or two numbers. Yeah, it's hard. That dividing by a third is always, um, it's always, it gets in the way, but it's also, it's part of the equation, so you can't quite ignore it. Uh, like, it took me a while, actually, to be like, to um, be comfortable uh, dropping the denominator, um, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think when I certainly, it took me a long time to become comfortable with a likelihood ratio. I'm going to link uh, on the show notes page, which will be localmaxradio.com slash 105 to um, all the materials um, that I can think of and any, anything you want to send me, Sophie, about uh, yeah. uh, about Bayesian inference if, if people want to learn more about this stuff. Now, you uh, you started a, uh, a business uh, based off all this yeah. awesome math, which which I think is amazing, uh, based consulting. Uh, do people usually yeah. come to you with like, hey, I have a problem and I know I need to use Bayesian inference, I know what that is, or do you have to like explain to them, you know, this is what it is, this is what I do, and this is why it does or doesn't apply to your problem? So uh, I can count on um, not all the fingers of one hand the number of times people have come to me with a Bayesian problem. Yeah. Okay. So so rarely. Uh, It's rarely. Uh, So the answer, I mean, the company is named Bayes with no E. Yeah. um, Because if you know me, then you know the maths I like. And if you don't know me, well, it's just the name of a company and it doesn't doesn't put people off. Um, So... The number of genuine, genuine Bayesian problems I work on is is really quite small. We, you know, I work far more in, um, I suppose you call it data science these days, but statistics and, and modeling and that type of work. Uh, but yet, Bayes and, and Bayesian statistics, I've often found people who have thought that maybe they have that type of problem. When you really dig into it and you've formulated the problem and, and you've really talked to them and they've understood the data they've got, that actually a lot of their questions have been issued. Um, have, have been have been answered that the number of times we genuinely have to develop a Bayesian solution to a problem is not very often at all unfortunately it's probably, as much as I would it's have probably very exciting when it is oh, yeah I mean it really has been it's been, we've had some fantastic problems that we've worked on um and I just I just love my job I'm really lucky yeah no I found a few um applications you know here at here at Foursquare where I work yeah I mean it it it's one of those things that has um, a really large reach and it can be used in a surprising number of ways. I think the, the trickiest part, I always say, of, of, of any Bayesian analysis is actually calculating the numbers that need to go in because actually coming up with some of the priors, let alone the likelihood ratios, is really tricky and actually um, needs you to be ever so upfront and honest about what you do know and what you don't know. And... And actually making sure that you've got some form of an informed prior. Oh, yeah. It's I, a lot I, I wanna, easier. I want to dive into that because so the prior, uh, just to remind people, represents your opinion on what's true before you've seen any data. And you said before that yeah. you don't like uniform priors. So explain explain that to me. Uh, works for guess who, maybe. but uh... Oh, yes, works for guess who. So, in, so it, for, okay, so for guess who, it... it it's relatively simple in that we have, um, we know that we we have uh, the answer. We know that there is somebody, you know, one of these little cartoons is the one we've got and we have a set number. Okay, so in that case, flat prior, absolutely great. But if we're trying to work on a problem where we don't have a simple solution, 
or maybe we don't even know what the solution is at the moment, then setting everything flat always slightly rankles me because if you genuinely don't know that much, why are you trying to formulate this as a Bayesian problem? If you genuinely got so little information or you know so little that you can't start to have a discussion about what you think the actual state is before you've got any evidence, I would suggest you need to go away and maybe find some more information or or get some more data or just have a long, hard look about how you're formulating the problem. So, and, and it might be, you know, sorry, go on. So yeah, like, no, what can, what like, um, what do you consider? So obviously like, you know, when you have your prior, you're not going to have that much yeah. information. You're going to have some leeway in terms of, you know, you're going to have yeah. quite a bit of leeway in terms of where the, where it's going to fall in the posterior. But like what, um, and I understand the problem with um, uniform priors is that I could just, keep dumping in hypotheses and they, you get an equal share just from existing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but like, yeah. uh, yeah. So, um, uh, I'm, do you have like an example of what would be like, Hey, what's the, an inkling of an idea that, that could be used for a prior? An inkling of an Maybe like, so, a, like, maybe you could give a specific, uh, um, example. Oh, now you put me on the spot. <laughs> uh, well, I can think of it. Okay, so there we go. If you've got an example in your head, go. Okay. Um, well, here's a good example. Uh, they, uh, uh, someone wants to know um, what is. I mean, I'll, okay, I'll just use the example of the of the problem that I work on at Foursquare. I worked on at Foursquare, which was like someone wants to know how effective their ad is. In other words, how much more likely was someone to visit their store given that they saw the ad, and so. Yeah. I know they're prob- you're probably not, uh, you know, a uh, hundred times more likely to visit the store. And no. it's possible that the ad is turning people away, but it's probably not much less than one. You know, you're, pr- you're probably not turning away uh, people away. Uh, there's a good chance that it is that the ratio is one, which means the ad was completely ineffective. And, you know, I'm centered at 10%, but I'm open to it being much higher, much lower, you know. And so that's sort of yeah. where we went. We, we kind of looked at historical data on that. Um, so that's actually a good one, a good example where we did have a lot of information on the prior, but I would argue we had more than we needed to do a Bayesian analysis. But also, uh, the crucial point of that is that you were open. So you started with something, but you're also prepared to go and look and look at historic data and you know, and inform yourself. Right, right. What well, what is this most interesting mathematician thing? Can you tell me what that uh, competition was all about? Uh, so, uh, an organisation called A Periodical yeah. uh, run a competition each year to win the title of the world's most interesting mathematician. And uh, last year, well, yeah, yes, last last year, I was asked to take part, and there were sixteen people, um, genuinely from across the world. Uh, in fact, the, fi- the other, when I was in the final, um, I was up against a chap from New York, uh, a teacher in New York. And what you have to do is write initially three blogs um, or posts on your your favourite bit of maths. And initially, I said I can't possibly do this because it was. It, it was everything that I just don't like. A, I'm not that great at writing, and B, it had hallmarks of being picked for a school team because when you put up this blog against somebody else, people vote for their favourite. Yes. Um, Sounds like, I was like 
Oh, God, absolutely. Uh, but as with everything, I said, oh, I'm not doing it. And my kids went, but you make us do stuff that scares us every day. Like, oh, okay. So 16 of us took part. And I, I thought genuinely I would write three blogs on my, my favorite bit of maths, which uh, were the maths that have always made me smile. So it was Bernoulli's, which was the thing I studied at um, sixth form. So when I was 18, that was the first time I remember looking at an equation and going, this is just amazing. And I, I Bernoulli's just, just blew me away. Um, and then the next bit was Navier-Stokes equations, uh, which was when I was doing aeronautical engineering. Like, so oh, yes, yeah, so these are all in the problem. field of like fluid mechanics and yeah. yeah. So you have to understand, I grew up wanting to play with aeroplanes. Okay. And I, I was absolutely dead set that my career was going to be working with aeroplanes and I was going to be um, an aeronautical engineer. How did you get, so, did you I, get to that interest? Uh, literally my whole life. <laughs> so you don't remember? Yeah, I mean, or you just, you're just always no, 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 attached from to being aeroplanes. From being knee high, I just loved aeroplanes. Um, and, you know, I, I often tell the story that Growing up, um, I was in a time when girls got Lego that was houses, uh, and I would try and build space rockets. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my family didn't need to be a space rocket. Um, and I, I have just genuinely, my whole life, just loved aeroplanes. And uh, everybody just thought it would be a phase I'd grow out of right <laughs> to the point when I graduated and got a job as an aeronautical engineer. Like, no, no, we are going to do this. Um, and then, like I say, a profound base though. But the, the competition was on. And so I did these three blogs and just assumed I wouldn't win any of the matches because I was up against some phenomenal <laughs> mathematicians, um, including, you know, lecturers from, from Oxford University. And somehow I got through to the semi-final um, and then the final. And people kept voting, which was very lovely and utterly, utterly unexpected. And at the end of the whole thing, I became the world's most interesting mathematician. <laughs> oh, nice. I, I don't think I'm any more interesting than I was before the competition. Yeah, well, well I will say, <laughs> like, I, um, I didn't know a whole lot about um, fluid mechanics and, um, and, and Bernoulli's equations, all that. And so I actually learned something from watching your videos. Oh, that's cool. So uh, one, of the, one of the things we, well, I used to do with my kids and certainly when um, I used to run, you know, be involved in some of the kids' clubs, ping pong balls with a hairdryer, you can have an awful lot of fun making your ping pong balls oh, yeah. spin round. In yeah, you know, and it's stuff like that. And what I think the great thing about it, the A periodical competition, it is an absolutely fantastic thing, is that there was, you know, there were two bits of maths got put up every day for a month. And absolutely, you know, and the, the the volume of maths that I learned about that I'd never heard of, and the ways that it was explained, it's just brilliant. Um, but my my personal favourite is um, somebody made a sticker book. I don't. I I never had a sticker book as a kid. My mum and dad would never buy me the stickers to put in the sticker book. Oh, you yeah. know where you get little. No, no, we used to have them. So somebody made an online sticker book. And I was a sticker in a sticker book. Okay, so I will post that all on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com uh, slash 105. Uh, you mentioned something interesting. Can I ask you, uh, how old are your kids? Uh, so my kids are 11 and 14. Okay, so you must have experience now coming up with like interesting ways to teach these concepts to 
uh, you know, people who are growing up. And so that's, um, that's something that I could probably be a lot better at uh, since I haven't um, had the experience teaching kids some of these concepts. Do you feel like, um, do you feel like you've come up with any like, good, uh, good activities or good ways to like, um, you know, teach kids about either you know, fluid mechanics or Bayes? So I have to say that both my kids don't really like maths. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm actually sitting with their mum to do maths. It's just, um, but I do do, uh, so the way that we have got fluid mechanics into our house is that we make a lot of slime and we make a lot of oobleck and <laughs> we make a lot of um, stuff like that. So my daughter is much more into sort of chemicals and chemical processes and, 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 and materials, making materials. Um, we did some really cool magnetic slime, and we had a lot of fun playing with the properties of that. Uh, and we've also made elephant's toothpaste. So we tend to go much more for the practical activities in our household, I have to say. Um, and my son, the only way I actually really got him engaged with statistics was working out um, the football leagues. Yeah, that would work. Yeah, so the likelihood of his favourite team, which is Stoke, um, and my favourite team. So for the first time ever, his favourite team and my favourite team were in the same league. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're about to be relegated. I think Stoke are about to survive. But we've been doing lots and lots of different uh, calculations on, you know, likelihood of winning and, and you know, just basic stats. Oh, but yeah, that's, that's a really good application. It's hard. This It's one of those fields that it's hard to learn just in the abstract. It's not interesting until it's something yeah. real that you want to understand. And then it's yeah, very interesting. It. <laughs> that, and, that, and hence when he came back and said, I, I, I just don't care about how many marbles in the bag. Right, but right. it happened to be of the World Cup. I said, I know, but I bet you'll care who England are playing in the World Cup. Oh, that's completely different. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> There's a big ball and we're pulling names out and we're seeing who's playing in which which club oh okay so <laughs> yeah you know it, it's finding finding what interests them and then putting the maths into it so they can see the application maybe it's just me it's going back to the application isn't it but i've never been that great at abstract ideas all right so uh where can we uh, any last thoughts on this and where can people uh, find you online whether they want to find your your you know videos or instructional things or whether they want to find you know your uh, your uh, consulting pages oh bless you so my uh, my company's based consulting we're baseconsulting.co.uk uh, if you want to come and find the website we're on social media um uh, across all the platforms at basetastic um that's that's to make you smile and i'm at sophie bays with no e um on on twitter so absolutely it'd be great to hear from anybody who's interested in Bayes and statistics uh, do please get in touch all right, fantastic. Uh, all of those links will also be posted at localmaxradio.com slash 105. Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. This has been an absolutely wonderful... Yeah, it's been a blast. All right, that, uh, that was a lot of fun. I will post all the links at localmaxradio.com slash 105. Um, I also wanted to... Uh, I, I want to write an article on my blog, and I feel like if I just say it, uh, what I want to do, then it's more likely that it'll happen. <laughs> but um, the, the article that I want to write, maybe, maybe I shouldn't try to write, you know, I, anything I think of that I want when I want to write something down, I'm like, I, I start thinking about what I want to write, and then it's like, oh, I want to write 10, 20 pages. Maybe it's got to be something shorter. Maybe I can keep it to, that's the hardest part, to like keep the scope to like a half page. So I actually write it in the evening. 
Um, but uh, I wanted to talk about the idea of pre-Bayesian reasoning, not non-Bayesian reasoning, but pre-Bayesian reasoning. In other words, what, you know, the reason why we use Bayes' rule and to come up with probabilities on different, uh, different theories, different reasons, is oftentimes we're trying to make a decision. And having these having these theories in mind, whether they're models or outcomes or whatever they are, uh, you know, it's often used in helping us make a decision in life or, you know, w whether it's, you know, whether it's a, a company doing this or an insurance company or whatever, trying to, trying to set their prices or, you know, whatever it is. And so the question I want to ask is, okay, Everyone makes decisions all the time. There are good decision makers and bad decision makers, but they don't have access to Bayes' rule or, and even Bayesian mathematicians and Bayesian thinkers like, like myself, like Sophie, we don't actually literally go through Bayes' rule every single decision in our life every single day. Uh, and so what can you do, you know, what do good decision makers do uh, to sort of approximate that? Uh, would be um, would be a good question. What can you use? What, what can you do? Bayes' rule is sort of like I kind of see it as like the pinnacle. Like, hey, we're we're throwing all the um, mathematical rigor at it. What's the uh, w what's the sort of baseline from that? But that's my that's the article that um, that I want to write. It's just a thought that I had in my mind, and so maybe I'll maybe I'll put that on my personal blog at maxsklar.com, and. Uh, and uh, if I don't do it, maybe someone can call me out on it. Okay, I said I was going to have a personal story today. And this, man, this is, um, I was thinking of whether or not I really wanted to share this, but this was kind of a really scary thing that happened to me on the subway last week. And I, so I'm, I'm going to be kind of vague about, you know, what happened because I don't want to get out like who, who this happened to. Um, but I mean, there's a good side to this as well. But last week I was getting on the subway after work and the woman in front of me just had a seizure and she fell down on her face, but she was, she fell right into the subway uh, car. The, so in other words, she wasn't in the car. She wasn't in the subway. She wasn't outside the subway. She was essentially over the gap between the um, subway and the platform. So her feet were on the platform and her head was in the subway and she was shaking violently. And I was just, it was, you know, afterwards I was really shaking, but uh, <laughs> shaking myself, like, you know, my heart was pounding, but, um, you know, I didn't know what to do. Uh, someone grabbed her, I grabbed her feet, we got her off the subway and then, you know, off the car. And then, you know, there's that yellow area where, um, which is like, don't stand in the yellow area because you're standing like literally right next to the train. And I was like, let's let's get her further out because I was afraid she was going to like violently shake and like, you know, roll into the train or something like that. Um, and so it was, and it was pretty scary because you don't know when the train's going to go. Uh, and so, you know, we got her there. Someone called 911 pretty quickly. Uh, it took a very long time for the, uh, the, uh, the EMT to get there. And so, like, seven of us were waiting. The person fortunately regained consciousness uh, after, say, three minutes. And she was, like, very confused. And, um, you know, it, it was eventually the EMT arrived. And, man, what a what a scary situation. I, I was—the the good part of this 
is with all the crazy things that happen in the subway, and there are a lot of crazy things that happen, there's, there's oftentimes what we're dealing with is a lot of people to avoid. You know, a lot of people who are, um, man, they, they, they smell bad or they're trying to they're trying to shake you down for money or something like that. And so the attitude that most people take when something's going down in the subway is go, uh, you know, try to, you know, try to avoid eye contact, try to avoid. But um, when someone literally needed help, and I don't know how helpful I could have, I don't know how helpful I was. Um, I think, you know, (laughs) I wouldn't have known the first aid. I should probably learn that. Um, But, um, there were like seven or eight people there who, including myself, who stayed with this person until EMT arrived to help out. And so it was actually kind of heartening that in the middle of New York City that um, there are a lot of people who uh, will help out uh, when something like this happens, even when everyone's busy trying to get to and from work. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty crazy. It's, you know, when I got home, my heart was still pounding. And um, it was because, you know, it's a scary thing to think about that could happen to anyone. And, uh, but I, you know, I think it ended okay. I think everyone was safe and, uh, and it was all good. Uh, well, not, not all good, but, um, but it, it could have, it could have ended a lot worse. Um, all right. So uh, next week, I actually want to do another news update because I think, you know, <laughs> there's been so much news, uh, just world news and I just can't ignore it anymore. I can't ignore it. Uh, yeah, I try to ignore it, but, uh, you know, there, there's so much, even like political stuff, and I know it's not a political show, but there's there's so much stuff going on in the world that we we have to talk about it next week, and um, and then we'll get back into some more guests. Let's see if I get a co-host for that one too. Um, maybe maybe it'll be solo. All right, have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.